0: So, uh, I'm really thrilled to be able to share with you this morning. We are uh, celebrating the Feast of Trumpets, and we're actually going to be celebrating over the next two week period three different fall feasts of Israel. And those of you that have been to Living Truth for a while might be familiar with this, but we're going to do a little mini series, as you can see, Sunday the 25th, today, Wednesday the 5th, and Sunday the 9th. It just so happens that this year on the Hebrew calendar, it aligns with our modern calendar. And the three feasts fall on days that we all happen to have services already here at the church, Sunday, Wednesday, and Sunday. And uh, it came up that uh, Pastor Michael had asked me, I don't know, about a month ago, he said, hey, uh, do you want to teach on a Sunday coming up? And I said, sure. So I'm in his office, I'm looking at my calendar, and there was a bunch of Sundays I couldn't do this month because I had other things going on. And I looked at my calendar, and I said, hey, the the 25th seems great. And I said, oh, wait, that's the men's retreat, and I'm going to be gone. You know, I, I won't be there. And I knew he was going, and I said, so by the way, who is teaching here? Since all the guys are going to be gone, all of the pastors and most of the elders are going to be up the mountain. So that leaves us with quite a conundrum. And he said, yeah, that's, that's a good question. We haven't figured that out yet. So as we looked at the calendar and we realized that it was one of the fall feasts of Israel, he looked to me and probably my beard and said, hey, that's you. Um, I, I don't understand exactly why I've been given the title of rabbi around here. I, I still haven't seen it. Um, a little bit of profiling, maybe. I actually, um, I'm half Jewish, uh, I like to say, on my Heavenly Father's side. Um, and so, <laughs> took you a few seconds on that one, but a few of you got that. The rest of you will get it on the way out. Um, in the uh, spirit, though, of my appearance, my Old Testament appearance, we are going to look at the fall feast, and I'm really excited. I'll be teaching today, and then also on the uh, 5th, October 5th, and the Pastor Michael will finish up uh, the message for Sukkot on Sunday, the 9th. So scripturally, today is what's known as Yom Teruah. It is the Feast of Trumpets, culturally known as Rosh Hashanah, a term that uh, many of you might be familiar with. And uh, it's really a busy time of year. There's a lot going on. You know, we've partnered with Beth Shalom um, recently. Uh, The rabbi was here for Pentecost with us. And then we also went over there last year for Sukkot. Was there anyone? How many of you guys went over to the Sukkot celebration? Quite a few of you guys. It was an amazing time. I think there was like 60 or 70 of us. I believe we outnumbered them, actually, at, the, at their own celebration, at their own feast. Um, but really, it's, it's a busy holiday. Uh, the rabbi jokes that it's like, uh, it's like Christmas for the Jews this time of year. There's just so much going on. Um, so they have, I think it's eight services in 15 days. Uh, And their average service can be like three hours plus. So no complaining today. Uh, We went about 10 minutes long in the first service. uh, But you're not over at Beth Shalom, so be thankful for that. We're going to open up a little bit differently. But I do want to just make one announcement, and there'll be a slide up there. So we are going to get to celebrate with them again, uh, this Sukkot, uh, on the 9th at 7 p.m. So everyone is welcome, but we do need you to RSVP, RSVP because they are actually providing food, and they need a head count of how many are going to be there. Um, All of those that went last year can attest, not only is the service great, but the food's great. Um, The rabbi jokingly says that basically all of the feasts of Israel have this premise. Uh, They tried to kill us, meaning, you know, someone was coming after the Jewish people. We won, now let's eat. That's what he says are are their main three focuses for the festival. So uh, check out the bulletin and sign up if you're able to make it on that Sunday night at 7 p.m. So we're going to continue with the service and do something a little bit different today. You see uh, John the Beloved here with uh, an odd-looking thing in his hand uh, that's known as a shofar. It is a ram's horn. Uh, And that's what this day is all about. Uh, If we go back to the the sermon slide, you'll see a a picture of uh, what I'm assuming is a rabbi blowing the shofar. And that's really the command that we see in Scripture for this holiday. Um, Before we do that, um, I'm actually going to recite two blessings that are normally said. If you were to go to a uh, a messianic service or even a traditional Jewish service. This is what uh, they would be celebrating today, and this would be a blessing that would be said um, over uh, the, the start of the service. So I'll actually say it in Hebrew, and I'll say it in English as well. And it goes like this: Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam, Asher BeMitzvotav, Lishmoa Kol Shofar. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments. And has commanded us to hear the sound of the shofar. And the second blessing is what's known as the Shechichianu blessing. Everyone, repeat that. <laughs> hey, you guys are good. Kind of like I actually wasn't expecting anyone to actually repeat it, and you guys did very well. Uh, the Shechichianu blessing is—it's um, it, a blessing of firsts, and so it's commonly said at at the beginning of festivals because it is the first time that. That festival has been celebrated since the previous year. So it's sort of a memorial. It's also done at certain times of year when there's a new harvest, there's new fruits or, or new foods that come in. When you enjoy, let's say, grapes in the fall from the first time when they're ripe, they would actually say this blessing um, over that fruit or over whatever produce of the land they brought in. And it goes like this Baruch HaTaOdonai, Eluhenu Melakalam, Shehechiyanu, Veki Imanu, Vehigianu, Lasman Hazeh. And that is, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us alive and has sustained us and brought us to this season. And it is a memorial that it is he alone that sustains us and keeps us and allows us to celebrate this. Remember, this is an annual celebration. So with that, John the Beloved will uh, blow the shofar for us. Thank you. Yeah, you can uh, clap for that. That is a very difficult instrument to play. There was a lot of rehearsing going on in the Living Truth office this last week. Miss uh, <laughs> Brenda also plays the shofar, and so it was quite a, a noise uh, in the office this week. <laughs> so, again, we're looking at the, the three fall feasts. Um, over the next few weeks, but specifically we will be looking at Yom Teruah today. And with that, we're going to be looking for Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus in the feasts. We're not simply looking at the feasts from an Old Testament perspective, but we are going to be looking for the signs of Jesus. He's foreshadowed in all of these feasts. He's even Foreshadowed and fulfilled some of the feasts that have already happened. And we're going to get into that as well. So I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, Hebrew thinking caps. It's called a yarmulke, a Hebrew thinking cap. It endows you with special powers when you put it on to be able to digest God's word. Uh, But we're going to look at some Hebrew words, we'll look at some Hebrew culture, uh, and really see what we can learn from that today. Now, much like when we start a new book, we're going to do a little overview as well. Uh, I gave Pastor Michael a hard time because every time we start a new book or a new series, you know, he always gets like a whole message as an overview. I think he barely gets to verse one. And I said, I got to do the whole overview and the whole message at the same time. So we're going to condense it. We're going to jam pack it into what I hope will be an hour. But uh, brevity is not a strong suit of mine. So I will apologize in advance. We're going to be in Leviticus 23 today. So I'm going to ask you to turn there. It is a very long chapter, 44 verses, so there uh, is no possible way that we're gonna read through all of it. We're just gonna pick out a few choice verses that apply to today. So turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus 23, uh, and let's pray before we dig in. Father, thank you so much for this day and this opportunity. Uh, This is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, would you uh, just uh, bring to life Uh, Your words in our hearts and in our minds illuminate it that we might uh, better understand you, better know you. And may we be also doers of your word. Uh, Let it penetrate deep into our hearts and let us be changed. We don't want to be comfortable with just merely receiving something and walking out this door uh, the same as when we came in. We want to know you better. We want to grow closer to you. So we just ask uh, for your spirit to guide us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Leviticus 23 will begin in verse 1. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. This is, of course, speaking of the weekly Sabbath that was to be observed. And now we get into the feasts and the festivals. Verse four, these are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed times for them. We're gonna skip down to verse 23, and that's gonna be the specific feast we're covering today. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a Shabbat, a Sabbath, a reminder by the blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Now, many of you are familiar with the whole book of Leviticus as as being a, a book full of laws. Uh, God is speaking to Moses. For those of you that are here this last Wednesday night, God spoke to him uh, as if he were a man, face to face uh, in the tabernacle. And this is uh, sort of the the scene of what's going on here. Um, So again, God is speaking to Moses face to face. And from chapters one up to 22, it's just a variety of laws that are listed. These are just some of the things, a quick overview Leviticus covers the law of offerings. That's the burnt offering, the grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. It then goes on to say how the priests are specifically supposed to handle those offerings and how the sacrifice is supposed to be made. Then there's laws about animals for food, clean and unclean animals. There's laws about disease and and leprosy and how to spot that disease, how to quarantine someone, put them outside of the camp, how to restore them back into the camp. And then we also have laws about relationships, idolatry, immorality, um, well, not to do those things. <laughs> and then finally, we have laws about the priests and the responsibilities they have, what normal temple service is supposed to look like. And in Leviticus 23, we get to the law of religious festivals. That may be what uh, your title says. So here are the laws concerning the, the feasts, concerning the festivals. They're called feasts, feasts, um, The Hebrew word for that is Moed, um, and it refers to an appointed time. Now, many of you might be thinking, well, again, this is Leviticus. You would just, you know, all these laws about sacrifice and clean and unclean animals. I thought that doesn't pertain to us today. It doesn't. However, it's still good to go back and reflect on some of that. But specifically, when we look at this calendar, God's calendar, if you will, um, that we're looking at, we're going to see that there's a purpose for it. So To get away very briefly from the Old Testament, let's go to a New Testament verse. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17 says this, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or to a new moon or to a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A commentator says this, Together, these feasts—this refers to the the seven annual feasts of Israel—outline the work of the Messiah from Calvary on one end to the messianic kingdom. He alone is the source and the substance, whereas the holy days themselves are merely the shadows cast by the indelible mark that he has left on history. This can be illustrated by a husband who returns home after a long business trip. As he sees the shadow of his wife's outline as she approaches the door, his heart beats faster. But he does not simply embrace her shadow. There would be no satisfaction in that. Instead, he opens the door. He steps through the doorway, and he embraces the person rather than merely the shadow. So we're not going to be embracing, we're not going to be putting all of our hope into the feasts, into the festivals. There's nothing in and of them that uh, is going to really do anything for us. But they're pictures, they're shadows of what's to come. As we speak of these feasts, Leviticus says in both verse two and verse four of twenty-three, he says There are appointed times which you shall declare as holy convocations. I mentioned this before. Uh, the word for an appointed time is moed. Everyone say moed. That's an easy one. A moed is an appointed time, a, a feast. Uh, it can mean a place of meeting. It can mean an assembly or a congregation or a festival. And so each moed or moedim would be plural, you add an I-M to the end. The moedim are feast days, they're holidays between God and between his people. The word holy convocation is the single Hebrew word mikra. Mikra is also an assembly, a calling out, or even a rehearsal. Keep that in mind as we move forward, rehearsal. So here's the big picture of Leviticus 23, and that is that God has a calendar. God has dates that he has fixed upon his calendar. There are special appointments where he desires his people, the Jewish people, but even you and I, to come in to meet with him, to worship him, to celebrate him. Now, I know that we're all familiar with calendars. We all have a calendar in this world, right? Most of us, it's our phones, okay? We look down, and it says, uh, this is where you're supposed to go, when you're supposed to go, and what you're supposed to do. And we just kind of wander around, right? glued to our phones. They tell us everything that we need to do. And we have all sorts of days and and special things that are put on our calendar, correct? Um, We also even have Google, our lovely little friend, that when you log on, it tells you like what special day it is. They have the little doodle picture and it tells you it's commemorative. Today is commemorative of some special thing. Uh, For those that are curious, and I know all of you are, today is National Daughters Day. It is also National Lobster Day, National Binge Watching Day. Uh, which seems to be celebrated a lot more uh, than just today, if you haven't noticed. And it is also National Cooking Day amongst, I think, at least 20 other different days that I saw were celebrated as of today. Well, what do these things have in common? Things that man says need to be celebrated. We put things on our calendar that we deem are important. But the difference here is God puts things on a calendar that he deems important. And how much more important are those things that he puts on the calendar? These are the Lord's appointed times. Again, verse one talks about that. They belong to him and only on his terms and by his invitation can men participate in them and enter into their benefits. So there are seven feasts in the year that are outlined uh, in Leviticus 23. Again, we won't be able to uh, really read through all of them, but I am gonna do a quick little flyover. Uh, So seven feasts and they're largely uh, divided into two times of the year. You have the spring feasts, And you have the fall feasts and the season we're coming to now, of course. But the spring feasts, many of you are familiar with, if you've been here a while at Living Truth or just other ways. If you've been a believer for a while, you may have heard that uh, Christ was uh, crucified on the Passover, right? Passover is the first uh, festival that we see listed here that's going to be found uh, in verse 5 of Leviticus 23. The feast of the Passover, so we're going to do, again, just a, a quick overview of these. So what's unique about these first four feasts, prior to Christ's coming, the first time, they foreshadowed his coming. Today, 2,000 years later, we can look back and we can see that that first coming fulfilled intricate details of all of those feasts. So they were pointing to the Messiah, and then the Messiah has then come and fulfilled those. We're going to take a look at that. The reason that's important is because Christ will fulfill the fall feasts at his second coming. But we need to know the beginning of the story. We need to know how he's fulfilled those first spring feasts before we understand how he is going to fulfill the fall feasts. It just doesn't make sense without understanding that. So very brief flyover. The first feast of the year chronologically is Passover. It's the foundational feast, and really all the other six feasts in the year are built upon that. It's celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, that is a Hebrew month, not a car. Um, and it is the first month on the ceremonial calendar, more on that in a minute, uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, you're all familiar with uh, the Passover story and what happened back in Exodus 12. The 10th the and final plague was going to be a poured out among the land of Egypt, death of the firstborn. And God gave a a formula, if you will. He said, each of you, you need to take a lamb. You need to sacrifice it. You need to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost of your house. And when I come into the lamb that night to strike down the firstborn, I will pass over you. So when Jesus came to this earth, we know that John the Baptist in uh, John one twenty nine, said of him, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus later, says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, has been slain. So you could see even early on, people knew that Christ was the fulfillment. Paul knew that Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. See, there was really only one Passover. It was, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago now. Now, it's celebrated annually, and it was supposed to be a memorial throughout the generations of Israel. But there was really only one initial Passover, And likewise, with Jesus's death, there was was one time. There was one sacrifice for all, for all men, for all time. And this happened, as we know, on the Passover. As Jesus was in uh, the upper room with his disciples um, sharing the Last Supper, we all know that that was the Passover meal. He said, I've earnestly desired to enjoy this Passover meal with you. And so figuratively speaking, how did Jesus fulfill this? Well, when he came... And when we, not necessarily as the Jewish people, but just as God's people, apply, if you will, figuratively, the blood blood to the doorpost of our lives, not our homes, it allows Christ to pass over us, to overlook our sin and our transgression. It's essentially removed as far as, as the East is from the West. Just as the Jewish people were redeemed from slavery out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, so in Christ we have been redeemed from slavery to sin. Feast number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, begins the next day, the 15th of Nisan. It's a seven-day feast. And the people were commanded to eat only unleavened bread for seven days. It was originally meant to signify the haste they made when they left Egypt. They were in a hurry. They didn't have time to let the bread dough sit there and rise. So figuratively, they eat unleavened bread uh, in commemoration of that. Today, it's customary that Jews literally sweep out their homes to get rid of any leavened bread. We know that the Bible pictures uh, leaven as sin, or sin as leaven. And so the Jewish people literally today go around their homes and they sweep out. This is where the idea of spring cleaning comes from, literally, if you've heard this before, that during the spring, they would clean out everything in their home. Every cupboard, every pot, pan, dish would be washed to make sure that there wasn't the slightest bit of leaven anywhere. Now, Jesus was the unleavened bread. Jesus was the only man that ever lived without sin. And we know that during that Passover meal, as, as he broke that matzah, that unleavened bread, that for the Old Testament uh, would have been, you know, significant of this unleavened bread as they, they made haste to eat, leave Egypt. He said, this is my body broken for you. And we all know as we look at the matzah when we do communion here on the first Sunday of the month that it is striped and it is pierced. And you've probably heard that there's a connection to Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we are healed. So there's clear connection to Jesus there. Again, reading from a commentary, Jesus, the unleavened bread of God from heaven, took on all our leaven and sin and was buried on the same day the Jews had celebrated this feast for centuries. What the Jews had been portraying in the Feast of Unleavened Bread Was a visual aid pointing them to the Messiah, Jesus, who had come and fulfilled in his flesh the reality pictured by the feast. While the Jewish people were removing the physical leaven from their houses, Jesus removed the spiritual leaven of sin from our house, that is, our life. The third feast we come to, the Feast of First Fruits, this would happen the day after the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, a seven-day festival. I know it's technical and complicated, and we're moving very fast here through these feasts. Each one should be its own message, but I'm trying to condense all seven into one. So keep praying for me. So the Feast of First Fruits is observed the next day, the 16th of Nisan. This, coincidentally, is the day that Jesus was resurrected. It marked the beginning of the grain harvest in Israel, and specifically the barley crop. What they would do is they would they would bundle the first fruits of the barley, the, the best, the choicest barley in the field, and they would basically tie around it and they'd mark it off. And it would be what's called a sheaf, or in Hebrew, an omer. And they would then cut it, they would harvest it, they would take it into the temple, and they would present it to God. They would literally pick it up, they would elevate it and raise it. There's some imagery again as Jesus is resurrected. They would raise the barley harvest, they would wave it before the Lord. And it was supposed to signify that the rest of the harvest would at some point be brought in. But in the beginning, this was just a small portion of the harvest to come. So how has Messiah fulfilled this feast? 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 tells us, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. There he is, raised, first fruits. For since by a man death came... And by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. And so Jesus was the firstfruits of the resurrection, we're told here. And much like the offering of the barley that that ensures a future harvest, that resurrection guarantees a future resurrection of the rest of the harvest. And what is that harvest? It's you and I, ladies and gentlemen. It's other believers. We are the harvest that will be collected and raised on that last day. Jesus is the first fruits, the guarantee, the down payment, if you will, of that harvest. The fourth feast that we come to is called the Feast of Weeks because it comes about seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. In Hebrew, the word is Shavuot, which just literally means weeks. So after they had uh, collected the first fruits, the the barley, they wrapped it together, they presented it to the Lord. Again, that was called an Omer, that that bundle, if you will, a sheaf or a bundle. They would do what they call counting the Omer, and they would count from the first day that that was harvested, they would count seven Sabbaths, we're told, here in Leviticus, seven Sabbaths, that is 49 days, right? Seven days a week, seven Sabbaths. The day after that on the 50th day is when the Feast of Weeks would happen. Um, So this was a harvest of the wheat uh, harvest, barley at first fruits and now wheat for the Feast of Weeks. Um, As a side note, it was actually also a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, some of this may start sounding familiar to you. If you were here with us in June of this year, we celebrated Pentecost with Rabbi Robert. He was here teaching. And it's a twofold celebration on Pentecost. The giving of the law to Moses on Sinai, and also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Those are the things that this holiday um, is meant to commemorate. So that outpouring of the Spirit is how the feast was fulfilled. And again, it's more commonly known by the Greek word as Pentecost, penta meaning 50 because it's 50 days after the previous feast. So 50 days after Christ's resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, the promised Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers in the room and that ushered in what is now known as the church age. So the four spring feasts have been fulfilled through Christ and, and, and through the Holy Spirit as well. And we are now in the church age. We are in the summer period between the spring And the fall feast. Now, summer is usually associated with, at least in Corona, dry, hot, parched, uh, not a great time of harvest. You know, plants that kind of withered and died a couple weeks ago? I know I did. So, how many have been to Israel before? Show of hands. Got a a lot in this. Have you noticed that it looks, uh, the topography looks eerily similar to Southern California, and even specifically Corona? I remember the first time I went, we got off the plane after what felt like way too long and you know, you're jet-lagged and tired, and we're, we're driving from the airport up to Jerusalem. And that bus drive looks like you're going in the foothills of South Corona. I mean, it's it's literally identical. They're actually on almost the same parallel as we are. If you look at a map, uh, they're also located about the same distance. Jerusalem is the same distance from the Mediterranean Sea as we are from the Pacific Ocean. Our climates are, are strikingly similar. So as we think about our summer that we just recently have been tortured with um, over the past several months, you kind of get a picture of what uh, the people of Israel endured during their hot and dry summers. It, it was a time really associated with, uh, with no harvest, with, with no produce, with, with nothing from the land, at least not much profitable. The long, hot summer months when there was no feast served as a prophetic picture to the Jewish people of a future time when God would be dealing with them on a national basis. He would still be redeeming individual Jews, but his attention would be directed towards the Gentiles. And so again, that's the the summer period that we are living in. The spring feast fulfilled some 2,000 years ago, and we now eagerly await the fall feast. We don't know exactly when that will be, but as the annual celebration, we look towards that, and we look forward to the second coming. And so we come to the fall feast, Yom Teruah, Today, the Feast of Trumpets. It actually begins at sundown tonight. At um, Beshalom actually does have a service at around 7 p.m. But as soon as the sun goes down is when the day actually will start for them. Uh, After that, we are going to look at uh, Yom Kippur on October the 5th, which is the Day of Atonement. And then we are going to look at Sukkot on October 9th, the Feast uh, of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as it is sometimes called. And so these four feasts foreshadow, again, not the first coming of the Messiah, but the second coming. Now, beside the literal biblical name that we see here for the feast in uh, verse 24, Yom Teruah, it's commonly known as Rosh Hashanah. How many are familiar with Rosh Hashanah? We've heard that culturally out there. Commonly known as New Year. It literally means Rosh is head and Shana is year. So Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, it is the head of the of the year. A messianic commentator writes this. Rosh is Hebrew for head. Shana means year. More than just the first day of the year, Rosh Hashanah functions like the head of a human body. If your mind is healthy, it sends healthy signals, properly directing your body parts. Likewise, a healthy Rosh Hashanah celebrates a healthy foundation for the rest of the year. How do you have a healthy Rosh Hashanah? We all know the orders. Desist from working. Come to the synagogue to pray, or the church. (laughs) Hear the shofar, and celebrate with festive meals. Again, I love Rabbi's joke. They tried to kill us, we won, now let's eat. Festive meals. So the first uh, day of this new year, Rosh Hashanah, is in the month of of Tishri, Tishri one, or the first of Tishri. And it's also the day that, the Jewish people believe Adam and Eve were created. Uh, this is some conjecture, but they believe that the world was actually uh, started to be created some five days earlier on the, what would be the 25th day of the previous month. So think of it like December 25th. And then on the first day of the new year is when Adam and Eve were created. That's when they basically started keeping time. Now, if we uh, look back to verse 24, you might remember that it said that Tishri is the seventh month of the year. So you're probably scratching your head saying, well, how is it the first of the year? It's New Year's, the head of the year, but it's the seventh month. What's going on here? Well, in Israel's history, there are multiple calendars. There's, there's technically three. There's two very well known, and there's a third obscure one. Uh, but there is a civil calendar. There is a ceremonial calendar. And there's even a calendar for the trees, which uh, is very interesting. Yes, they said trees, like what grow out of the ground. So you can study that one for yourself. But we're going to look at ceremonial and civil. So today, we use what's known as the Gregorian calendar, uh, named after Pope Gregory that kind of issued an edict or a decree in the 1500s sometime. Prior to that, uh, we had the Julian calendar, named after Julius Caesar. That was in 45 BC, so as early as before Christ. They actually started using a calendar that had January 1 as the start and December 31st as the end, just like our modern calendar calendar. That's around the time that was instituted. Prior to that, though, prior to 45 B.C., and that edict, of course, which came from Rome, who, uh, who ended up capturing and, and destroying Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, prior to that, we didn't have that timeline. Those calendars that I referenced are based off of a solar calendar, but the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so it's going to give you a completely different um, organization of, of months and of days, So Leviticus 23 begins chronologically with Passover. It says the month is Nisan, the first month. And on the 14th day, that is the month of Nisan. But that is the ceremonial calendar. It begins here because Passover is the first of the ceremonial feasts. It's listed chronologically. It starts a new ceremonial calendar. As God calls his people out of Egypt, it was kind of a reset, if you will. Hey, this is the new calendar I want you to start observing different than the civil calendar that they would have been um, using since at least creation. We can think of this as like a fiscal calendar, right? So we have January 1 to December 31 as our normal civil calendar that everyone abides by. At Living Truth, our fiscal year runs April 1 to March. Yeah, runs from the beginning of April to the end of March. We can also think of a school calendar that starts in the spring and then ends in the fall. So we can see that there's many overlapping calendars, and that is exactly what we're seeing here. So the civil calendar, though, in contrast, begins on Tishri 1. It's currently the day that the modern Jewish calendar resets. So today, at sundown, it changes from year 5782 to 5783, and it starts over, much like we end 2022 and we will start 2023. This is based on an old, or excuse me, a young earth, a creation viewpoint that the Jews believe that the earth is literally 5,783 years old. We won't even get into that debate here today, but that's just what they, uh, what they base their calendar off of. Um, so to all of you, it is Happy New Year. I know you woke up today on September 25th and didn't think that it was New Year, but Happy New Year. As they say in Hebrew, Lashana Tova, which basically just means a, a good year to you or to a good year. So Rosh Hashanah is typically what is uh, observed today, much more so than Yom Teruah. Same day, same holiday, but completely different names. Rosh Hashanah is not found in the scriptures at all. It is only referred to as Yom Teruah. But what happened in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and much of the celebration that surrounded the holiday that had to deal with, with the temple, once that was taken away, they basically found new things to celebrate. And we can think of our modern day New Year's celebration. We have certain things attached to it, right? We, you know, we, we wait to count down until midnight. People drink champagne and you know, kiss uh, when the New Year starts. We make resolutions. There's all sorts of things that we do in commemoration uh, of a holiday. And that's similarly what the Jewish people have done with Rosh Hashanah. But what does Yom Teruah look like? What is the biblical command that God gave? Remember, they're his feasts. He's the one that dictates how they should be celebrated, how they are to be celebrated. So let's look back again at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 23. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. If you're taking notes, Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6, also gives a layout for this feast, but it only specifically deals with the sacrifices that are to be offered Wine and grain offering and animal sacrifice that was supposed to be offered. But again, in the absence of a temple, in the absence of those animal sacrifices, what does the celebration look like? Well, uh, it's clearly not a lengthy or complicated celebration, is it not? Two verses. We have a whole holiday that revolves around two verses here. Uh, they were commanded to memorialize the day by blowing trumpets and to keep it as a Sabbath day of rest. A Sabbath of complete rest is what it says. And it is to be a reminder by blowing trumpets. Two important words, reminder and trumpets. The first word reminder is the Hebrew word tzikaron, and it means a memorial or a reminder or remembrance. God says his people are supposed to remember this day. Well, that's great. It doesn't tell us what we're supposed to remember. It just says remember the day. It doesn't exactly say what we're supposed to do. Um, so what does that look like? Well, first, we're just supposed to remember who he is, We are supposed to remember the fact that he is the creator and sustainer of all things, that uh, he is in our life, that he is worthy of our worship. Now, the Jewish people were supposed to do this on a weekly basis on the Sabbath. Really, they should be doing it on a daily basis. And you and I should be doing that same thing. But sometimes there are certain times of year where we, we have a special remembrance, where we reflect upon things in a little bit different way. So both traditional Jews and even Messianic Jews Uh, Today we'll read through the entire chapter of Genesis 22. That may sound familiar to you. That's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And they head up to the hill to offer a sacrifice. And Isaac's carrying, you know, the, the wood and all the things for the sacrifice on his back. And he gets up to the top and he says, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham lays him out and he prepares to kill his own son and offer him to the Lord. And the Lord stops him. And he says, no, no, no. Now, now I know that you know, your heart is after mine. You're willing to sacrifice your own son. And Abraham looks up, and what does he see? He sees the sacrifice. He sees a ram caught in a thicket by what? His horn. So to the Jewish people, this, this horn is significant and really is reflective back on Genesis 22. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness, a reminder of God's provision, that place of the sacrifice of, of Abraham and Isaac was named the Lord will provide and provided he has. It's also a remembrance of just the covenant that God made with Abraham. That his descendants would be like the sand on the seashore, that they would be many. And it also points back to God descending on Mount Sinai to give the Torah. When he came down, he announced his coming with a trumpet and then the cloud and the, uh, descended upon Mount Sinai. So not only is this a way, though, for us to remember God, but Numbers 10 tells us it's a way for God to remember us. And it's actually commanded there. Numbers 10.10 says, Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. Not a reminder to you, but a reminder of you before your God. So remembrance, the second thing, the blowing of trumpets, the second element of the feast. The Hebrew word teruah, hence the name Yom Teruah. It's a loud noise, a joyful noise, a shout, an alarm, or blowing. It refers to the noise itself, uh, not just the instrument. There were two common instruments used at that time. There was the shofar, and there were also the silver trumpets that were used in the tabernacle and later in the temple, Uh, That's in Numbers as well. And in Solomon's time later, there was actually as many as 120 silver trumpets that were used in various aspects of of temple service. But shofar is, is the most common word used for trumpets. And again, it definitely delineates between the trumpets used for temple service and the trumpets used for other purposes. It was the shofar that was used in Joshua 6 as they marched around the city and the walls of Jericho came down. Now, beyond this feast, beyond, you know, Jericho, here's a couple special times that the trumpet or the shofar specifically would have been used. It was used as a call to an assembly. It would be to announce to the people as they were in the camp, that noise would summon them, hey, it's time to gather together. It's time to come together. We see that in Numbers 10. It's also a time uh, to announce the start of war when they would go into battle. It would be a thing, one, to announce that they were actually going, and it would be to make sure they gather the troops. Hey, we want to get ready. We're going out to battle, also in Numbers 10. And then we also see that it's used during the coronation of a new king. So three things to keep in mind, a call to an assembly, a call to war, and the coronation of a new king. Think of those as we look ahead. Now, each of the, uh, the different uses for the shofar had a different sound, You heard John play a couple different sounds. We don't know exactly which one uh, was supposed to be used on this day versus which one was used for calling an assembly or going to war. It's a little bit uh, uh, confusing. There's not a lot of uh, evidence in the scriptures or even in some of the early Jewish writings. So the Jewish people said, well, we're just going to make every noise that we know of so we cover all of the bases. So what you heard today was basically a sampling of that. In messianic synagogues, though, uh, or even traditional Jewish uh, Celebrations—they would actually blow the shofar about a hundred times. There, there's something significant about that 100 number of different blasts. We had uh, just a few short ones. Um, again, I guess it's the sake of time today. You know, the services that they do last like three, four, or five hours sometimes. So, uh, no whining here today. If we run five minutes long, right? Or we're going to send you over to Beth Shalom. That'll be the the punishment. So, scripture in speaking of uh, these trumpets and these blasts. Uh, often speak of men and of angels blowing them. Two times, though, only two times is it recorded that God specifically blows the trumpet. And the first I briefly touched on was in Exodus 19 when God descended upon Mount Sinai to speak to Moses. The second occasion has not happened yet, but we believe it will happen. It's prophetic. And that last and second occasion will be at the Messiah's return. Zechariah 9 gives us this prophecy in verse 14, where it says, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. Now, the ancient rabbis repeatedly quoted this verse and tied it with the second coming of Messiah. It was very common belief. As the day of the Lord begins, that's, they believe that this is the day of the Lord. And this is, um, has some interesting... Ramifications of what I'm about to share here. This is really aligned with a pre wrath view of the rapture. You're probably familiar with this. Pastor Michael has done some teaching on it. That happens to be his particular view in terms of the rapture. Again, we're not getting into debates about that, but what we're going to look at here and from a messianic perspective really fits that pre wrath view. That is a singular coming of Christ to rapture his church and gather his people to himself and to pour out wrath and judgment upon the world. Very brief overview of that. So this is what's referred to as the day of the Lord. And a messianic writer says this, as the day of the Lord begins, God's last trump will be sounded. The Messiah will reveal himself in great wrath, and he will prepare the nations to be brought in to the new covenant. So great, lots of Old Testament verses, but what about New Testament? Well, let's turn there. First Corinthians 15, turn there with me, please. We're going to look at two different um, New Testament verses that really are the picture of Christ returning. We're going to see where that fulfillment uh, of the fall feast comes in. We'll begin in verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So the last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and those who remain alive will be caught up with him. Keep turning to your right. We are going to go to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, we're gonna see another uh, picture of this uh, second coming, this day of wrath. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, there's the word teruah, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive And remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, do you remember the three things that I told you the shofar was used for? A call to an assembly, a call to war, battle, and a, and a, uh, a call announcing the coronation of a new king. Here, brothers and sisters, is the prophetic fulfillment of the first one the call to an assembly. At the last days, when, when God himself blows the trumpet and Christ returns, he will gather together to himself. He will call the assembly to himself. That is the rapture. He will collect us and he will take us with him. And as God's people, we need to know that that last day is coming. We need to know that that trump will sound at some point and we need to be ready to be assembled as the people of God. This is a dress rehearsal. Remember I mentioned a mikra. Um, has the meaning of a rehearsal. These are things that should be done and celebrated annually in preparation for what's to come. And just as no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming but the Father alone, this feast is supposed to prompt us to readiness and to repentance. We are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in keeping with that idea that no one knows the day or the hour, this actually, this holiday is observed over the course of two days. How did that come about? Well, it's supposed to start at the beginning of the month. That is the new moon, when it's a very tiny little crescent, sometimes hard to see. So depending on where you were, remember, not all Jews were in Israel. Most were, but not all. So if you were in different parts of the world, uh, maybe if the weather was a little bad or cloudy that day, and when the moon should be rising, you couldn't see, well, you didn't know when the day started. And what had to happen uh, is there there would be temple priests that would go out, and they had to have two witnesses to verify a new moon. And when that happened, that was the exact moment that the day would start. But they didn't want to miss it. And really, again, nobody knew the day or the hour. Do you see the connection? Do you see the imagery? So they decided to celebrate the day over the course of two different days, really today and into tomorrow, so that they make sure uh, that they would get it right, if you will. And as the rapture of the church happens, as God calls him, uh, God blows the trumpet, Jesus calls people to him, calls the assembly, holding on to that pre-wrath view. The idea is the wrath of God is poured out immediately after. That God comes to wage war, and there's our, our second point. It's a call to war. So a call to an assembly, God assembles his people, and then he wages war against this world, against Satan, against the wicked world that is here. And this is the beginning of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, Revelation 6 talks a little bit about this uh, day of wrath. And uh, there's a lot of other verses um, that are sometimes a little unsettling. Joel chapter one says, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountain, so there is a great and mighty people there has never been anything like it, nor will there be anything again after it to the years of many generations. And Zephaniah 1, 14 to 18. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and a battle cry against the fortified cities. But we know, brothers and sisters, that God's people are not appointed to wrath, First Timothy 5, 9, and therefore we will not be here when that takes place. Praise the Lord. No one's excited about that. That's wonderful. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Everyone is expecting wrath. Okay. All right. So a call to an assembly, a call to war, and now finally, a coronation of the new king. So earthly kings would receive this. We have many records of that in scripture. But when God completes this work of of calling the Gentiles to himself now, he's he's called the the Gentile people. He's going to come. He's going to set up his messianic reign and his kingdom. uh, And he's going to once again turn his focus to the Jewish people, at least on on a national basis, But it says in Zechariah 14, 9, that the Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. We are very slowly winding down. Don't look at your watches, but turn with me, please, to Psalm 47. This is what's known as the coronation psalm, coronation uh, specifically of Jesus as the king. O clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of the Lord whom he loves, Salah. God has ascended with a shout, a teruah, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, Shofar. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. He sits wholly on his throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And these are the big three things that we see concerning the trumpets, concerning Christ's second comings. So what does that mean for us today? How do we respond as not Old Testament believers, not even as Messianic Jewish people, but just as Christians, as believers in Jesus? Well, a very quick uh, summary of some of the practices that would commonly be found in a, in a Jewish setting and then how we can appropriate some of those for ourselves. Today marks the beginning of what's known as the 10 days of awe, A-W-E. It ends on Yom Kippur. There's a 10-day interim. So we're here today not this coming Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we'll be teaching on Yom Kippur. What is the days of awe? Well, they're days of introspection, days of repentance, days of uh, reflection, days of prayer. Jewish tradition holds that divine judgment is rendered on this day for the next coming year. So the picture is that In heaven, this is, again, a traditional Jewish perspective, not a messianic perspective, not a Christian perspective, but a traditional Jewish perspective holds that there's three books that are opened in heaven by God. One is the book of life for the righteous. If your name is found in the book of life for the righteous, that means you will get to live for an additional year. The second is the book of life for the wicked, kind of an oxymoron, book of life for the wicked. If your name is found in that book, tradition holds that you will die in the coming year. And the third book is the book of life for the in-between. It's literally what they call it, the book of life for the in-between. Limbo, you don't know, good or bad. And you have 10 days, brothers and sisters, that's it, to repent, to get right with God, to turn back to him. The Hebrew word is teshuva, to turn back, repent, and turn back to God. If not, you run the risk of being blotted out, essentially. So the divine judgment is thought to be Uh, Dished out, if you will, on Yom Kippur. Prayers of repentance are often prayed. There's a book called Selichot, Prayers of Repentance, and they're scripted, if you will, prayers of how you are to turn back to God so that you can ensure that your uh, name is in the Book of the Righteous. Another service they perform is called Tashlik. They go to a body of water, literally a sea, ocean, river, and they will actually, they, they take their pockets and they turn them inside out and they literally shake out the crumbs or the dust out of their pockets. Um, in reference to Micah 7, verse 19, that says, yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. So they'll throw those crumbs or they'll even throw breadcrumbs, again, signifying sin or leaven. They'll cast it into the sea as a memorial. So we, brothers and sisters, are not obligated to do this, praise the Lord. But we can use these things as an example. We can look back and think that this is a great time of year. Really, any time of year is a great time of year to think if we need to turn back, if we need to repent, if we need to say any prayers. We know that we have forgiveness. It's not dependent on anything. That's done. That's finished. Our names are, we don't look for our name to be written in the book of life for the righteous, right? But we're told to rejoice that our names have been found in the Lamb's book of life, amen? That's the book of life that we want to be found in. And that book is for eternity. These other books are once a year. You might make it in the Book of the Righteous this year. It gets shut. But next year, I don't know. You might not make it. We don't have that, brothers and sisters. We have assurance. We have hope. Amen? Amen. So these are things that we can uh, really celebrate. We don't have to be bound by these things, but we can look at some of the shadows of things to come. We don't need to go to a body of water and you know, cast our sins into it. God has already cast our sins into the deep. God has already removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so as we close, I just want to share one story. Rabbi Eliezer, one of Israel's ancient rabbis, declared this, repent one day before your death. His astonished disciples asked, does then one know on what day he will die? The rabbi then replied, then all the more reason that he repent today. Today is the day of salvation. The idea is, of course, that men don't know when their time is up, when the day will end, nor do they know the day of God's wrath, of God's judgment. Isaiah 55 tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And my prayer, brothers and sisters, is that you have done that. It's not a special prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It's not found in a, a book of scripted prayer. It's a prayer of your heart, and it's an action and a decision that you make to, to turn from your uh, your sin. That Hebrew word, teshuva literally means to turn around, to, to go back, to repent of that sin and trust in Christ. My prayer is that you've done that, brothers and sisters, and that we can take, um, we can just take hope in that, that we can celebrate on a day like today. While there are many uh, Jewish people around the world that are quite literally terrified of a day like today because they got 10 days left to get it right. But we don't have that. We can share that hope with them. Would you pray with me, church? Father, we thank you for your great forgiveness of sins. Thank you for sending your son for us as the Passover lamb who would shed his blood for us, the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Thank you, Lord, that that miraculous work, that miraculous sacrifice has cleansed us. Cleansed us from all sin and from all unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone that hasn't ever prayed a prayer like that, that hasn't turned to you, that they would do so. What a great time as we, uh, as we take these days, this time, even these 10 days, while we don't have to, we're not bound under the law to seek God and pray specific prayers of, repentance. But Lord, we can, we can draw close to you during these 10 days. We can remember your sacrifice once and for all. We can thank you for that, Lord. We have rest. We have assurance. We have forgiveness of sins through that finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you for that. And as we, Lord, look to your second return, um, that blessed hope that we have of your second coming in glory, let us be ready, Lord. No one knows the day or the hour. So let us always be seeking to be ready. Let this be a reminder that our days are numbered, that we don't know the day or the hour, Lord. Would you uh, just also work in the hearts of those that maybe need to come back to you, that need to make that prayer of repentance, that maybe have strayed a little bit, turn their hearts back to you, Lord. Again, today is the day of salvation. We thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name.